0: Hello and welcome to the April Forecast Direct. Uh, with us today for Forecast Direct is Vince Iacopelo. Uh, Vince is a member of the Anderson Forecast Board of Advisors that was newly constituted this year. So he's a founding member of the Board of Advisors. Uh, he is Executive Vice President for Growth and Strategy for All But Wheels Up International, a firm that leads in logistics, information, and technology providing services International trading firms. Vince is a licensed customs broker and is the current president of the Pacific Coast Council of Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders and is trade co chair of the 14 COAC Committee on Com- Commercial Operations of Customs and Border Protection. Uh, welcome to UCLA and Forecast Direct, Vince.
1: Thank you, Jerry. It's an honor to be here. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, well, We're happy to have you here, uh, and we want to dig into some of the issues where uh, you are arguably one of the world's experts, which is supply chain and supply chain interruption. So a lot of the discussion about supply chains thus far has been about throughput at the ports, uh, capacity constraints with, uh, with on-land transportation, rail, and trucking. Zero COVID policy, changing of the compositions of goods demanded, but an important part of supply chains is the movement of goods across the ocean, especially uh, from Asia, You know, such ports as Shanghai and Yokohama and Ho Chi Minh City to Los Angeles and Long Beach. Uh, and so we wanna dig into that particular aspect of supply chains today. And maybe we can begin pre-COVID, if we can all remember back that far. Uh, Set the stage for us, what was happening before the pandemic? So we're talking about 2017, 18, 19, and there was a time when it was thought that there were too many freighters and smaller freighters were being taken out of service. Uh, Set the stage, what was happening in the ocean-going freight business Uh, particularly TransPAC business at that time?
1: So Jerry, thanks for the question and thanks for the focus on the the pre-COVID. And um, I'm relieved that you don't want to go back as far as uh, 1987, which was my first year at 21 years old, uh, coming to LA, spending 33 years in TransPAC. But you almost have to, we weren't spending 30 seconds on it. I just remember coming in the late 80s and the tremendous opportunity, as production was shifting to Asia at that time, and and the ports of LA Long Beach were becoming the gateway ports for North American markets. And um, I I I, I uh, want to call out two other years. One would be 2010, which was uh, post Great Recession, which was the the restocking year, the year that uh, folks. Restock depleted inventory and then again 2017. And the reason the reason I call those two years out is I like to say they were uh, mini dress rehearsals for what happened in the last two years which was 20 and 21 because um, you'll hear a lot about systemic issues in transpacific supply chain. Uh, some of those being uh, pre, pre-pandemic systemic issues, like um, the lack of leveraging advanced data, uh, not leveraging all the technology that is available um, on shipping manifests or load plans or um, each ocean terminal and ocean carrier having their own proprietary system with different levels of functionality for data um, you'll hear a lot. You heard a lot in the last two years about ocean carrier policy on equipment, what containers can go on, what chassis, um, and then also there's the 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 ever ever present labor issues in the ports, um, and what well, that could be contracts, that could be automation, um, and uh, also what role. the government plan, like the Federal Maritime Commission, in in looking at what one might call unfair business practices. And way prior to the pandemic, uh, the largest 10 or 11 ocean carriers uh, really grouped off into three groups, three, three consortiums, right? And I love your question because I'll end my comments, my opening comments with your question. Uh, The reason those groups were greenlighted by the Federal Maritime Commission is that the narrative over the last 20 years was that the ocean carriers were um, not making money or not making a margin that was sufficient to their survival. And um, I don't know how, how, how much the listeners might know about the Hanjin situation three years ago. Um, the Korean carrier that uh, filed bankruptcy. But yes, you're right. Prior to the pandemic, um, for the last 20 years, the the carriers uh, were reporting uh, much lower profits or losses. Uh, And ironically, the last two years, they've kind of made up all those losses in about two years. So pre-pandemic, all those things existed. I think what happened during the post COVID rush to, uh, and, and that this crazy demand for consumer goods that ensued uh, was that um, these systemic issues just got exacerbated. They just got uh, totally more acute. And, and I don't know if that, I, I hope that addresses some of the pre pandemic issues that might, you might have asked about.
0: So, so you brought up uh, something that we economists think about all the time as firms compete and that's marginal cost. And there was a, a, a kind of technological, I don't know if you would call it revolution, but a change in ocean going shipping uh, as uh, as these large carriers like Marisk uh, moved to very large freighters, triple E class, freighters that had 50 uh, foot draft and beams of 160 feet in the huge ships, uh, which dramatically dropped their marginal costs, meant that they were the most competitive. Uh, and uh, so that sort of leads to two questions. Is this really the, the driving force behind the consolidation and the sort of elimination or bankruptcy of some of these smaller firms, first of all, and, and second related to Supply chains is uh, that way. We're seeing events like uh, Ever Given getting stuck in the Panama Canal and and other very large freighters. Uh, I said Panama Canal, Suez Canal, Suez Canal. Uh, yeah, but the sister ship. I, being, I heard it's
1: coming to the Panama Canal soon. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, and the sister ship being stuck in the uh, going aground in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, and and uh, and that may be leading to very large freighters avoiding the Panama Canal and increasing the, the attempt at throughput in Los Angeles and Long Beach. How does this change to Triple uh, E and very large freighters uh, really affect ocean going freight and, and the supply chain issues that we're seeing today?
1: Well, the, the trend on the large mega ships was pre-pandemic, Jerry, as you say. Um, as, as carriers went to a hub and spoke system, kind of like the airlines, right? So I'm gonna feed cargo into Singapore on smaller vessels. And then I'm gonna put them on a huge vessel from Singapore to LA. Uh, a funny anecdote as a customs broker and as someone um, whose, custom, whose customers are importers who are selling the goods, some of the byproducts of these mega ships were uh, prior pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, were how long they took to unload, you know, um, you know, they come into LA uh, a couple at the, the beginning. They would come into Los Angeles and take five days to unload, which was unprecedented, right? So, so there were all these byproducts of the big ships. the the the, 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 the you raise a great point about the canals, both of them, the Suez and Panama. It's amazing that we're we're talking about them so strategically still, um, hundreds of years after. About a hundred years after they've been uh, built and had similar, similar, what uh, the Panama Canal anyway, at least that long. Um, sure. it, 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 I think that you raised two things: you raised infrastructure upkeep, right, um, an investment in infrastructure. Uh, you also raised the dredging question, the big dredging debate in the United States. Uh, certain certain numbers of our ports, like Seattle, I think Los Angeles, Long Beach. Are naturally deep, many are not, right? Like Oakland, and um, and and so so we need we need dredging for these bigger vessels, right? Um, To keep them able to call these ports, Um, and then you also you also raise uh, the creation of these large ships, which I do believe had a margin motive. Um, I think we all have to go back to 2010 and remember the Great Recession. Was uh, at least in discussions with our customers, was the, the zero inventory model became very popular um, that I'm not going to hold inventory unless I've sold it or very close to selling it. Um, and that's, we lived in that environment from 2009. Um, so, so uh, precisely at the time, uh, these, these carriers are putting on these mega vessels. Uh, people were not moving these as quickly to Europe and North America from Asia. Um, we've, we've, we've seen in the last year or so a reversal of that. Uh, August, 2021 was probably the most acute situation where um, lots of companies wish they had inventory in the United States or Canada or Mexico or anywhere but on a vessel waiting to berth Long Beach or on a vessel stuck outside Shanghai, right? So um, the, the demand for consumer goods the appetite for US sellers to hold inventory uh, were were all functions of how big those vessels are and will be.
0: And so a little earlier, you mentioned that uh, these carriers, particularly in the three consortia, uh, made back all of their losses and then some. I believe so. (laughs) At least they're not uh, complaining about losses right now. No. Uh, And uh, in in the last couple of years, uh, but those profits ought to induce uh, other smaller firms to bring back ships that have been mothballed. Uh, Are we seeing any of that or are those ships, have those ships gone to being broken up?
1: So we we have seen that. And we've also seen these small carriers uh, like One High, right? Uh, or or carriers that used to be just inter-Asia add Ensenada or Long Beach onto their rotation. So we saw some small carriers go back into the North American market. And um, we've also, um, uh, I I, I believe that uh, if you, recent data came out in in, in the media uh, that there is an effort to bring more equipment back online. Whether that's going to happen by 23 or Q4 or 22 is uncertain, but there there are efforts to put more equipment into the system.
0: Sure, if it's like airplanes, it takes a long time to bring a ship back that's been mothballed, right?
1: Yes, and and, and my only caveat to that, and, 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 and I, hey, it, it's probably useless to go back to April 20, which was a terrible time for us all, but to go back to April 20, the argument was... Um, Did the carriers uh, replace capacity as quickly as demand? And not all of those ships were mothballed in in the traditional sense. So Mm -hmm. is a ship really mothballed where it needs to to come back in six months? or Was it nearly idle in Singapore where it could have gone back in? Um, and, and, And those are some of the questions asked about how quickly capacity had been brought back. I think that's kind of a new point now because the more capacity the ocean carriers put on, they filled. So now the motivation is to, actually, to, to add capacity. I would wonder, Jerry, um, if the motivation is there to add a lot of capacity, because then it's going to you know, drop the price a little bit. Um, but uh, I think the motivation is there uh, to add capacity, as you said.
0: Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, maybe it's only one week ago, uh, the, the, the president, I guess a couple of weeks ago, and then one week ago, um, uh, Senator Warren echoed this, uh, that the consortia, the three consortia that you described were holding up uh, prices in uh, an oligopolistic sense, uh, that, uh, a non-competitive sense. And, and that was one of the reasons why we're seeing higher consumer prices. Uh, w- what are your thoughts on that?
1: I'm going to, if you give me a couple of seconds on this, I think I'm going to go back to the live UCLA session we did um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think the answer is probably yes to anybody who's, I don't think you need to be an economist to know that if your operating cost or your supply chain cost rises significantly, uh, that probably needs to reflect in your sell price to consumer or to retailer, although in the summer of 21 uh, that a lot of companies were not able to do that because they were locked into contracts with the retailers and uh, they ended up uh, getting margin erosion. They ended up making a lot less margin. Uh, it's a pretty much an untold story um, that those prices were not, pa- not all those prices were passed to, to the consumer. I think there has to be some truth to the fact that rising any price in the supply chain that significantly is going to result in um in, in, a, in a higher price along the way because otherwise how would the seller do it you know um i mean I, especially 12 12% 14% i think the craziness about 21 was having ocean feed prices five times right not 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 you know 20% or 50% but paying five times and i've said this before um, I don't know if I've said it on UCLA, but uh, some other platforms, there is an argument that prior to the pandemic, the price might have been too low, right? Um, maybe it was too low uh, and needed adjustment. But I think uh, five times is is probably too high. So as we uh, do, we ever go back to anything called normalcy is a question. But but do we when we come out of the pandemic? Um, related practices uh, and buying habits, and maybe consumer demand is not as robust as it is now, what is the price, right? Uh, Where will that price be? And um, I think it'll be somewhere in the middle, you know, somewhere. um, uh, I think people have to get you, companies will have to get used to higher transpact prices than they were used to pre-pandemic. But, at the same time can't support what happened in August and then again in January of 20, of twenty two, and August of 21. So um, and I, I do, I do wanna to talk to this, um, Senator Warren mentioned uh, and others have been mentioning for a long time. And by the way, there were many, many people in Washington, the Beltway and on the West Coast of the United States um, that said, Um, this would happen, not exactly this obviously, but that this would happen with pricing and lane selection with the three groups. And the argument was, well, the three groups need the three groups for survival. Um, And things were happening before this pandemic, for instance, um, decisions about where vessels go and how often they go, are no longer made at all in the United States. So out of these 10 carriers, maybe 11 carriers, one might still be flying an American flag, but none of them are headquartered in the United States. So that brings in geopolitical questions. It brings in national security questions about supply chain. Uh, We've been, we went through five or six years in the 2010s of, of, hey, you know, what happens, and it's not a hypothetical, it happens. What happens if an ocean carrier takes 20% of capacity and shifts it to Europe instead of the North America? They don't need anybody's permission to do that, right? Um, so uh, I think the what Senator Warren and maybe maybe uh, the Biden administration was expressing was something that many have noticed years before, that obviously the US uses a, loses a lot of leverage if we don't have one US-based carrier. Uh, and, and I think uh, I, I, may be, I, don't want, I may be wrong on this, but I think when President Kennedy formed the Federal Maritime Commission in the early 60s, it was about making sure that we had one, one US flag carrier, right? That's, um, so many decisions are made in Geneva and Copenhagen and Singapore and Shanghai, um, but there aren't a lot of decisions being made in LA, New York, and DC. Uh, so even before the pandemic, um, people saw some threats to um, the U.S. not having a dog in the fight, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is much more nuanced, though, uh, in, in in terms of pricing, and uh, and we're looking at spot prices, but uh, but maybe not average prices. Let's turn to what these ships are carrying, which is containers, and. There seems to be some issue about moving containers around the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach uh, threatened. I don't know if they really ever fully implemented fines for containers, empty containers staying on the, uh, on, on the terminal property. Uh, it, and kind of thinking about this, not knowing really the the depth, not knowing what you know, you wonder, you know, if ships are leaving if they bring in 10,000 containers or 7,000 containers, why aren't they leaving with 7,000, even if some of them are empty? And So what what is the container issue uh, that uh, causes containers to be left in one place uh, rather than somehow beginning to circulate and get back to where they're needed?
1: So I'm going to try and unpack this, because it probably has many facets. Um, First, I think we all, all need to realize that when my company or my customer orders container in China. We do not choose the chassis company. We do not choose the terminal it comes out of. Uh, All of that is something we buy when we buy the ocean freight. So when you get to Long Beach or Oakland or, or Los Angeles or Seattle or New York, and someone says, well, you know, the chassis issue is really Joe's problem, right? Across the harbor. And the wheels issue is really Jane's problem across the harbor. That customer bought all those services from the ocean carrier, and that's why when you hear ocean carrier policy brought up, is those are decisions at a policy level that can change. Um, getting to the fee, the other the other thing is what's called the box rules, which should be um, relaxed, and that means that um, this this ocean carrier's container can only go on this type of this company's chassis, right? Um, and that's it. And if that chassis is not available, that container just sits. Uh, so these again, these are policy issues that could be addressed. Um, I will talk about the fee. And, and I've talked directly with the leadership at the ports as have others about this, sent some emails in. Uh, there was a lot of concern about the fee. Uh, The fee basically was threatened, but not implemented. And um, in talking to the leadership of both LA and Long Beach uh, at the Trans-Pacific Maritime uh, Maritime, uh, meeting in Long Beach at the beginning of March, um, I think we all have a little better perspective. Um, I don't think it's genuine to say that the ports never intended to implement the fee. Uh, I think there might've been an intention there, but there also might've been, let's see what we can do with the threat of the fee, right? And then and then, thirdly, um, as a middle market company who serves middle market customers, uh, no surprise here that the fee would have been exponentially more detrimental to middle market companies. <laughs> it's like a lot of things. Um, so, Uh, For instance, if if you were a big box shipper, uh, if you were a big retailer, um, you might have owned your own chassis. You might have had a 24 seven operation and all of those things are more conducive to getting containers off the pier more quickly. Right. But if you were a middle market company that was still relying on the ocean carrier for some of these really silly rules, right about about box rules and chassis and containers and hours of operation and night gates and things like that uh, not being fully utilized, um, then that middle market company, which was my customer, right, they didn't have control to avoid the fee because they didn't have control to get that container, and that was our big pushback. That uh, the second big pushback which is the most obvious is that the port imposes the fee on the ocean carrier and the ocean carrier immediately sent notices out that they were going to impose the fee on the customers. So here we had this transfer of the fee from the carrier all the way down the chain to the customer and the middle market customer had no control over that. So we had a big problem with the fee in the beginning. Um, Here's the postscript. The postscript is that the data seems to show that, um, I don't wanna misspeak here, but 20 to 30% of the containers uh, that were maybe stuck on the pier prior to this may have moved uh, by those companies that did have control over chassis and night gates and 24 seven operations. So if that's the case, one can make the argument that it was effective and that moving a third of the containers off uh, is better than nothing. And then ultimately the fee wasn't imposed, so no fees were really passed onto, um, onto, uh, onto, you, onto the, the middle market users. But it does raise another issue, I believe. Um, it raises the issue about how bigger players uh, have maybe more choices right, uh, in the market, and that we want to get to a place with advanced data, uh, better ocean carrier policy, where small and medium-sized companies have the same competitive or, or more of a competitive role in some of these uh, practices that can help get goods off more quickly.
0: Is there a shortage of containers worldwide because of an increase in in world trade, or um or or is that really not the
1: case so i'm gonna i'm gonna semi punt on this one because i've been in a lot of meetings with people on the hill or sacramento that say just make more containers why don't we just make more containers but if you make more containers and you we don't change the data and policy issues we don't change the systemic issues right um you know, we might just have more containers stuck in one place. So, mm-hmm. so really, uh, I, I think that more containers would not hurt. But things like uh, loosening the box rules, uh, a gray chassis pool, um, mm-hmm. a, a, a unified platform, which, by the way, the Port of LA has, uh, the optimizer, uh, you know, a unified data platform that's not specific to a terminal that all stakeholders can share. Um, I would go there. Not just me, I mean, the the, the whole industry is thinking about this, I think would go in that direction.
0: So all of that leads to uh, my final question for the podcast, which is you've described systemic problems, the uh, operations uh, management or systems management problems, uh, infrastructure problems, uh, and uh, and the structure of the industry. The kinds of supply chain interruptions that we've seen during this pandemic lead one to think that there are going to be changes and that the industry is in evolution. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on where this is going and how long it might take and what it might look like uh, once these
1: issues have been resolved. Well, thank you for that question because I think ending on a semi-positive note is always a good thing. I, I um, looking at this, um, I don't think there's, a, there's been this in discussions that we've been in. And there's a couple of pilot programs popping up, at least in LA and Los Angeles. And I, full disclosure, I'm sitting in El Segundo, so I'm cheerleading for our region, of course. Um, but but I really think that LA, the ports of LA and Long Beach have been out front on this, um, because they were aware of these systemic issues before. Obviously, the Biden administration has put a lot of pressure on both ports because 40% of ocean cargo arriving in the United States comes through those ports. So, um, but even before the pressure from the administration. um, Jerry, to your point, uh, many see this as an opportunity to finally look at these issues and come up with uh, something durable, something that leverages technology, something that really shares data. Um, labor issues are a bit more complicated, and they're about to become even more complicated in July, right? So, um, uh, so, uh, yes, I think I think that out of this bad experience all around, but but if you look at other industries like finance, and they're going through the same type of thing, right? Like what worked, what didn't work. Um, I don't think anybody wants to go back to the old problems, right, with no solution. So. To answer your question, I think there's this, this window of opportunity is open um, to come up with serious um, serious issues. And I, I, if you ask me what, what I think is gonna change, um, I think this data has been out there forever, for many years, and that leveraging advanced data to make it to, to plan better, um, I think is something you're gonna see right away. A lot of our companies are doing it already. And um, you also may see the Federal Maritime Commission with a more enforcement authority that they don't have now. There is a bill passed by the House that's in the Senate, which is Garamendi-Johnson, which would give the Federal Maritime Commission more enforcement oversight over the ocean carriers. So maybe better data, more advanced data, better technology systems, uh, and probably more enforcement oversight by the federal government.
0: And the current geopolitical system or current geopolitical problems with a war in Ukraine uh, make what you raised earlier, national security issues uh right. more important and really coming to the fore in in finding solutions, right? Uh, that's
1: a great point that I missed. Um the geopolitics of this, and you know, the, the Russia component has a China component too, right? So, so um the Russia-Ukraine component might have a China component that opens up the whole dependency on China thing. So I think you're 100% right. The geopolitical situation could be the biggest wild card.
0: Mm-hmm. It makes it a bit more urgent to solve these, these problems in the coming years. Yes. Uh, Vince, thank you so much for joining us this morning for the April UCLA Anderson Forecast, Forecast Direct podcast. Uh, We have learned a lot about ocean-going freight, where it is, but also importantly, where it's going to be going and uh, how we're going to perhaps avoid next time these kinds of supply chain constraints, at least in ocean-going freight. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Thank
1: you, Jerry. Thanks a lot. I really, really enjoyed it.